Let's pray together. God, what a delight it is to gather together as your people and just listen to long passages of scripture read, to be encouraged from Ephesians about the work that you have done to save us and the good news of the gospel that is reconciliation between God and man. And from Isaiah to be reminded of what a mighty, lofty God you are and what lowly, humble creatures we are. And I pray that you would indeed humble us so that we don't think about ourselves, but instead we think about you and your glory and your goodness and your faithfulness and your love and your kindness and your wisdom. And I pray that as we think about you more, we would love you more, we would be just humbled before your majesty, we would be like you in loving others and caring for them. Lord, I ask that as we look at your word this morning in First Peter, that you would shape us through the teaching of your word. Um, Lord, you know from my own private personal prayers that I believe there is nothing as powerful as the word of God to change people's lives. And so I ask through the power of your spirit and the power of your word that as the scriptures are proclaimed, that you would transform us. And I ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So hopefully you're already with me in your Bible in 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, we read verses 1 through 4 last week, but I'm actually going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1. And we're going to focus on verses 5 through 7, but I want to uh, chew off or bite off this whole chunk, verses 1 through 7. So read with me, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The Apostle Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Well, if you were here last week, hopefully you remember uh, we talked in detail about church elders. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, then I encourage you to maybe look up that sermon on our YouTube channel, Maricopa Springs, or get it on the podcast. Uh, I think there's some really important information in that sermon that you as a Christian should know, and so it would benefit you to listen to that. This morning, we're mostly going to talk about humility, but first I want to clear something up. Because if you remember from last week, our discussion about elders then uh, as you were reading this with me, if you were paying close attention, maybe you noticed in verse 1, Peter talks about elders in a particular way. That word is used again in verse 5. 
And maybe the question that comes to your mind sounds a little bit like this. Hey, Grady, last week you said that elders are a specific kind of role in the church, a particular office. I would say elders and pastors are the same thing. That's verse 1. But now here in verse 5, look at what it says. It says, you who are younger be subject to the elders. So how do we know that Peter is talking about some kind of church position in verse 1 when clearly here in verse 5 he's talking about kind of older folks? Well, that's a great question. Um, My answer would be that although Peter uses the same word, he uses it in two different ways. And we would know that from a careful reading of Scripture. And because I want you to be a careful reader of your Bible, I want to look at this for a moment. I'm going to go fast because I recognize this probably won't interest everybody in the room, but I still think it's important. Three reasons, actually there were like five, but I cut it down to three for you, okay? Three reasons why Peter's using the word elder in two different ways between verses one and verse five. Verse one and five, okay? Ready? Here we go. First, if you look at verse two, Peter commands the elders there to exercise oversight. That's a particular kind of work. That word oversight is another word that Paul uses. It comes up in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Check out this slide. I didn't do all of them, but you've got 1 Timothy over th- uh, 3 over here, and you've got 1 Peter f- uh, 5 over here. And what I want you to see is the way that the word elder and overseer are connected. And it's the case there in Titus chapter 1 as well, okay? What I'm arguing is that elder and overseer are technical words that refer to the same role. A pastor is an elder, is an overseer, okay? But not every older person in the church is tasked with this responsibility to be an overseer. That's an important distinction. Only elders, or what we might call pastors have this particular responsibility to oversee the body. So this word elder can refer to those who in the church serve as elders or pastors who lead the church, or it can also be used to just refer to somebody who is older. And we have to look at the context to decide which is being used. Second, not all elders or what we might call pastors have to be old, okay? Just because we use the word elder doesn't mean we're referring to somebody who's old. I mean, I'm 39. I don't quite think I'm that old. I guess if you ask my kids, they would say I'm old. But those who are younger can be elders in this technical sense. In fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, his disciple, and he says, "'Let no one look down on you for your youth.'" But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy was an elder, and yet Timothy was relatively young, particularly when compared with Paul. So you can be an elder, you can be a pastor, and you can be young. The requirement, according to the Bible, is not that you've reached some certain age that makes you an elder or a pastor, but rather that you have the character qualifications. You are like Christ in the way that you live. So not every elder that leads the church is old, and not every old person in the church is an elder or a pastor, okay? Third reason is you've got this word likewise in verse 5. Likewise tells us that there's a comparison taking place. Peter is saying, 
just as the overseers, the elders, are supposed to be an example to the flock for the flock to follow, likewise, you older folks in the church should be an example for others to follow, younger people to follow. And this is a really important idea I want to dwell on a bit longer, okay? Because we live in a pretty messed up culture that doesn't give sufficient respect and honor to older folks. We don't really value age, unfortunately. So let's be clear about something first. Just because you're old does not mean you're wise. Okay, you can be 60 in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s and you can be a fool. So age is not necessarily uh, something that proves you are wise. And just because someone is young doesn't mean they're necessarily a fool, okay? As far as the Bible is concerned, to be wise, my friends, is to practice the commands of God, to do what pleases God. That's the only thing that matters. Let me, let me say that again. In your life, the only thing that will ultimately matter come time and eternity is whether you choose to put into practice what God has commanded in his word. That will make you wise. And if you obey God's word, whether you're an 8-year-old or an 18-year-old or an 80-year-old, you are acting in accordance with wisdom. But in God's word, there is a certain amount of respect that young people should have for those who are older, simply because they are older. God has ordained the generations according to his own great pleasure. God chose who your parents are. God chose who your children will be. God chose those who have come before you and he chooses those who come after you. You don't have any control over that. And everything that God does is good and wise. And so because God has ordained those who come before us, old age is to be honored as a kind of respect for the wisdom of God in the way that he has orchestrated all things. God chose for you to come after those who came before you, and you should respect the fact that you are traveling the same path that they traveled before you. But even more than that, one of the names given to God is that he is called the Ancient of Days. God himself is old beyond measure. God came before us. He has always been from before time itself began. And without him, none of us would even exist. We are here because he was before us. And likewise, those who are older came before us. And without them, we would not exist. And this is the way of God, the ancient of days, the oldest of the old. This is how he has designed things. And so out of reverence for God, we should respect those who came before us, humbly remembering that we're dependent on them. Now, here's the part that matters. I have a word for you younger folks and a word for you older folks this morning, okay? Young people, you first. Show respect to those who are older than you. If you're humble, you might actually learn some things from them. You might be able to glean some wisdom by chatting with somebody older than you and saying, tell me a bit about your life. 
Tell me about your struggles and your victories. Tell me some cool stories about what it's been like to live and grow old. Stop, if you are a younger person, just stop thinking about yourself for like 10 minutes and go find somebody who's older than you and ask them about their life. I'm quite confident that you would be blessed by listening to them, by getting to know them. My grandfather, before he passed away, actually wrote his life story down in a book and gave it to all of his grandkids. That was a joy to read. It was an incredible story. And he was a Jesus lover, spent his life following Jesus. An incredible testimony. Many of the people that are here that are older than you are people that have been faithfully walking with Jesus maybe longer than you've even been alive. And wouldn't it be cool to spend some time listening to them tell the stories of what it's like to faithfully follow Jesus in the face of adversity? They might be an encouragement and an inspiration to you. Now to you older folks. You do deserve respect from us younger folks because you came before us in God's sovereign plan. That's true. But I also want to encourage you to prove yourselves to be worthy of the respect that we show you. Be worthy of even greater respect. Be the kind of people that we can look up to and say, man, when I'm, when I'm that age, I hope that I can be as godly as that person right there. Go ahead of us in a praiseworthy manner. Don't stop seeking Jesus. Finish the race well. You have run so long. Finish well. Let your lives be a testimony of God's goodness and let it be an encouragement to those of us who come after you. And oh, how I I wish, I dream for a day when every younger woman in our church had an older woman who was praying for her and investing in her. And a day when every younger man in our church had an older man who would pray for him and encourage him and disciple him. That the generational divide of our church would be filled by the humility of older people and younger people together seeking the wisdom of obedience to God's word. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, the reason why Peter moves immediately from talking about older and younger people in verse 5 to talking about humility is because there is a natural tension in the disparate ages between young and old, isn't there? Both old people and young people have a temptation towards a certain kind of arrogance, don't they? Young people tend to look on old people because, or they tend to look down on old people because the old people are past their prime, right? They're, you know, they're old news, they're outdated. Old people kind of appear obsolete. They don't know how to work the phone. They're not all hip on the new and trendy cool things that the kids really like. And, you know, old people tend to make it pretty obvious they don't care about any of that stuff. They've, they've learned just how useless it all is in the end anyway. And so young people look down on old people. And vice versa, older folks will look down their noses at younger folks because young people, young people are conceited, they're stupid, they don't know anything, they're self-obsessed. You know, they're, they're full of ignorance and arrogance. Old people like to remember those good old days, right? Before all the young people came around and ruined everything. 
they like to complain about younger people and just the ignorance of youth and how silly it is. Now, there's more I could say about this kind of natural tension, but you, you already know what I'm talking about, don't you? Um, whatever category you may find yourself in, uh, you know what I'm talking about. So Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And although we are always tempted in our fallen sinful state to look down on other people, I want you to understand that in the kingdom of God, nobody should be looking down at anybody else because we should all be looking up at Jesus. Let me say that again. In the kingdom of God, there's no room for us to look down on other people because we are already looking with our eyes fixed upwards at Jesus. And if you're looking up at Jesus, then it's impossible at the same time to look down your nose in arrogance at somebody else because you will just be awed by the greatness of Christ. And so to clothe ourselves with humility means that none of us should think of ourselves as great or lofty or high or mighty because God alone is great and exalted. He alone is mighty. He alone is wise and good and beautiful and powerful. And none of us would even be here if he had not given us life. Stop regarding man in whose nose is the breath of life. Where does it come from? It comes from God. And so we should never look down on others. We should only ever look at Jesus who is exalted above all other things. And the terrifying thing that we find recorded for us here in verse 5 is that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. And so if you're here this morning and you think of yourself as a great person, then you need to understand that actually Jesus stands in opposition against you. And he will use his greatness and his power to fell you like a tree fallen in the forest. He will lay you low. As Galatians chapter 6, verse 3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We live in a culture that's obsessed with helping people feel great about themselves. But do you know what the Bible wants you to feel about yourself? You ready? The Bible wants you to feel about yourself that you are nothing. You are nothing. How's that for your weekly sermon encouragement? How was church today? Oh, I guess it was okay. My pastor said I should remember that I'm nothing. You are nothing. This is the theme of Psalm chapter 8. It's the theme of Romans chapter 3. It's the theme of Isaiah 40. You already heard it in Isaiah chapter 2. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? In all of the most important areas of your life, think about it, you are utterly powerless with absolutely no reason to boast about your greatness. You didn't create yourself. You didn't pick the time or the place of your birth. 
You didn't choose who your parents were. You can't rewind the clock or speed it up. You don't keep your heart beating. You breathe, but you don't choose your lungs to keep breath inside of them. You don't make the sun rise or delay the day of your death. None of those things are in your power. You are nothing. But in your nothingness, the Bible also says that you are loved by God. You are loved by God. And God gives grace to those who are humble and acknowledges that before him, they are nothing. He gives them grace and he lifts them up. He exalts them. And so here's the real definition of humility. You know, forgive me for insulting you and telling you that you are nothing. We're getting to a point here, I promise. I do sometimes think we don't define humility correctly, okay? So humility is a low view of your own importance when compared with God and the greatness of his majesty. That is humility. When you, in your nothingness, compare yourself rightly to God with all of his perfections and his majesty and his beauty, then yes, what could you say about yourself except I am nothing in light of this God who is everything? But this does not mean that we need to mope around like Eeyore, always debasing ourselves and talking about how we're such wretched, terrible people. No, God made us in his image. God loves you. God created you with great skill. God made you with wonderful intention. You are not an accident. You have great worth in God's eyes. In fact, God sent his own beloved son that you would be rescued out of sin and condemnation. You are truly treasured. And precious in the eyes of this God. Though you are nothing, he cares deeply for you. And so we dare not be proud and elevate ourselves, thinking that we're greater than we actually are. But neither should we disparage ourselves and mope around on the floor. God has given us value. He sent his own son to die for us. And so to be humble is to not think negatively about ourselves. To be humble is to simply think rightly about ourselves. You are not the center of the universe. God is, and you should acknowledge that. You are not greater than others. God is great, and we are equal before him. And so do you want to know the real secret to humility? Peter says, clothe yourselves in humility, all of you. Do you know what the real secret to clothing yourself in humility is. It's so simple. Most of us probably don't realize it. It's very simple. Just don't think about yourself. Don't think about yourself. Because if you think about yourself, then you may begin to think you're great and then you become proud. And again, in comparison with God, you are nothing. Only God is great. But if you think about yourself and you think, well, man, when I compare myself to other people, I'm actually kind of nothing and I'm, I'm lowly, 
then you're dishonoring God because actually God has said he loves you. But even worse than that, do you know what happens when you begin to think very lowly of yourself? You can begin to fall into the trap of thinking, I'm so lowly, I'm better than other people because they don't think about themselves as lowly as I think about myself. And so you fall into the trap of pride anyway. And so the secret is just stop thinking about yourself at all. What should you think about? You should think about God. You should think about his glory and his greatness. Think about his goodness and his beauty, his love and his wisdom. Stop comparing yourself to other people that might be around you in your life and instead compare yourself to God. And then stop thinking about you at all because you're not even really worth thinking about. Think about something that is worth thinking about. And that is God in all of his glory. This is really the lesson that Jesus taught in Luke 18. Turn there. Go to Luke 18. And you're actually going to get to hear Leonard preach about this uh, in a couple of months. But I'm going to steal all the good stuff before he gets there. <laughs> Luke chapter 18, verse 9. I love this parable. In Luke 18, verse 9, it says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now the lesson is obvious, isn't it? The problem with the Pharisee is that he just compares himself to other people. And in doing so, he begins to think he's really awesome, right? You can do that. You can find people that are worse than you and compare yourself to them and begin to think, wow, I'm a really, really good person. He's not an extortioner. He's not unjust. He's not an adulterer. He's not like a tax collector who's greedy for dishonest gain. When he compares himself to other people, he sees, I'm a devout and righteous man. That's what he sees. But the tax collector, he doesn't look around the room to see who he might be able to compare himself with. Instead, he thinks about the holiness of God. He begins his prayer with God, God. And rightly in comparing himself to God, not being willing to lift even his eyes up to heaven, he begins to see that he is nothing and he's broken. And Jesus says, that man is justified. He's accepted before God. Because his his humility causes him to bow his head 
and acknowledge the holiness of God in comparison to his own nothingness. And of course, the proud Pharisee then is rejected. He sees himself standing above others. And in the end, what does his piety mean? It means nothing. It's made him proud and self-righteous. And I always like to point out when I'm looking at this passage with people, as maybe you've heard me say before, that you know you're in trouble when you read this because you go, wow, God, thank you. I'm not like that Pharisee. (laughs) Right? And so you are. And so am I. And so turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 5. So Peter says in verses 6 through 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, everybody is under the mighty hand of God. Nobody escapes it. But the way in which the mighty hand of God rests upon you depends on your heart before God. If you are arrogant, then the hand of God is laid heavy upon you to crush you and to humble you, to make you into nothing. But if you stand before this God already humble of heart, then his hand is upon you to lift you up and exalt you and to make you great in his eyes. And so how do you become a humble person? How do you grow in humility? Well, let me remind you, let me tell you once again what I have said. You don't think about yourself at all. You think about God. You look at the sacrifice of Jesus and you realize you have sacrificed nothing in comparison to what he sacrificed. You look at the wisdom of Jesus and you realize you know nothing in comparison to him. You look at the beauty of Jesus and you realize you are wretched and ugly compared to his beauty. You look at the riches of Jesus and you realize you are poor and impoverished compared to his riches. You look at the strength of Jesus and you realize I am weak in comparison to him. You look at the suffering of Jesus and you realize you have suffered nothing compared to what he suffered. And you look at the goodness of Jesus and you realize you are evil in comparison to his perfect righteousness. And so you embrace that you are nothing and you cast all of yourself upon him. You turn your anxiety over to him, realizing that he cares for you. And this is a really important point here, okay? Maybe you're familiar with this verse, right? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But I want to try and change your perspective on this verse. I don't think that when Peter says this, in the context of what he's been talking about with humility, that Peter is saying, just bring, you know, the heavy thoughts of your heart before God, and he cares about you. He'll take those things. Yes, of course, we can do that, and that would be a a meaning of this verse, and I encourage you, bring your anxieties to God. Cast those things upon him. He will comfort you and care for you. Yes, of course. 
But think about this. In the larger conversation of humility, what might this mean? What anxiety most threatens to blossom out of our lowliness? Do you know what I think it is? I think it's the anxiety of being nothing. Doesn't that make your heart anxious? To think that you are so powerless? To despair over the fact that you're not enough? That when God looks at you, he does not see you as being satisfying in his eyes? Doesn't that cause you to feel a sense of dread and despair? Despair that you should do more, you should contribute a greater amount to the effort? Maybe despair that as you look around, other people are better, they're getting ahead, they're doing more than you? Despair that you're not strong enough or good enough? Or maybe despair that if you acknowledge that you're weak, what will happen? You'll be trampled and abused and taken advantage of. But all of those anxious thoughts, you know what they reveal? That you're thinking about yourself. As a pastor I know once said, stop it. Stop thinking about yourself. That was a joke because I said that a couple months ago. No, but seriously, listen closely to this point. The greatest anxiety that we must learn to cast upon Jesus is the anxiety of embracing the truth that we are nothing. Let me say that again. The greatest anxiety that you must learn to cast upon the feet of Jesus is the anxiety of embracing the truth that you are nothing. Don't you see, what could be more anxiety-inducing to the human soul than embracing the fact that you are nothing, that you are powerless, that your life is fleeting, that you're desperate and weak and ugly and poor and foolish and broken, that you are a sinner, that you bring nothing to the relationship with God except your sin? This is the source of all of our anxiety. Think about it. We are powerless and we are nothing. But the gospel is that you can take that nothing and you can transfer it to Jesus. Cast it upon him. All of your anxiety, you can trade it and give it all to him. And in response, what will he give you back? Confidence in his love for you. He will call you his beloved. He will lift you up and exalt you. He will hold you fast and love you. Like the tax collector from Jesus' parable, he's anxious as he stands in the temple that he is not holy enough to be in the presence of this God. He is a sinner and not worthy of God's acceptance. Peter would teach us to cast that anxiety upon the feet of Jesus because he cares for us. And that's the real problem then, isn't it? You know what the word humility sounds a lot like? It sounds like humiliation. In order to be humble, you must embrace your own humiliation. Someone might want to think of themselves as humility, but I don't know anybody that wants to be humiliated. To be humiliated is to be embarrassed, to be publicly shamed, to be disgraced and insulted. 
But in this fallen world, my friends, there is no humility without humiliation. It doesn't work like that. And it's because Jesus was humble that he was willing to bear the humiliation of the cross. And he bore it for you. It was your humiliation that he gladly took upon himself, being publicly embarrassed and shamed, disgraced and insulted, so that you might have his glory and his greatness. We get his tender care and love because he took our disgrace and humiliation. We receive the exaltation of his embrace, his comfort. We become his beloved children. And this is the hope that we have as Christians because of the cross. That if like the tax collector, we come to this God and we lay ourselves low before him and we think about him instead of us, then he will respond and lift us up and he will prove his love and his care for us. If we lay the anxiety of our humiliation upon him and we acknowledge, God, I am nothing, then he will graciously care for us. He will make us into something wonderful. He will call us his children. Let's pray. God, it's simple, but it's easier said than done for us to take our minds and our hearts off of ourselves and to begin to think about you instead. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the heart of Jesus. Jesus, who thought not about his own well-being, but went to the cross willingly, embracing our humiliation so that we might be accepted by you. Lord, would you transform us into that kind of person, that we would be like Christ, that we would be humble before you, that we would acknowledge your greatness and our lowliness. Lord, would you teach us to cast upon you the anxiety of our soul that we are nothing, and would you teach us to trust in your care for us? That if we are humble before you, you will exalt us. That you will call us children of God. And we thank you for this gospel truth. In Christ's name, amen.